Actually, the resurrection is not over yet. The story is not done in the Gospel of John. You would think that at the end of chapter 20, it's all over. The story is told. And in fact, it even sounds like it when chapter 20 ends. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these signs have been recorded, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then suddenly, John gives us a postscript. It's as if chapter 21 is an afterthought. Oh, by the way, let me tell you what happened as a result of Jesus' resurrection. And then there come two stories, two primary stories. One we talked about last week in which Jesus meets the disciples on the shore with fish for breakfast and they cast their nets at his command on the right side and bring up 153 fish. One early church father said there were 153 species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And so it is symbolic. And by the way, the nets did not break. All that God wanted in the nets were in the net, representative of everybody in the world. And he made a big to-do out of the fact that Christ died for all the world, symbolized by all the fish which Peter caught symbolizing what Peter would catch later in even reaching out to the Gentiles and see them saved. I thought that was novel, but that, that view of the 153 fish probably is a little bit better than another one. Another early church father said that 100 is the number of the law and 50 is the number of grace and 3 is the number of trinity. So it's 153 fish. <laughs> I like that one. And you can get more speculative than that if you'd like. But the truth is that it was introducing to us a story of how Peter came home. How did Peter come back? We have talked about how do you handle humiliation when you're the one being humiliated? How do I handle rejection when I'm the one being rejected? How do I handle ridicule when I'm the one being ridiculed? But today, before we leave this theme. I want to talk about accepting forgiveness. How do I take somebody's forgiveness when I'm the one who did the ridiculing and the rejecting and the denying and the humiliating? How do I come back home? How do I get back to God? How do you get back to God when you have turned your back on him, when you have denied him, when you have run from him as Peter did? How do I relate to the one I have offended and how do I accept forgiveness? The road back from failure when you've been the one to fail. That's the question. Schopenhauer, who was a German philosopher, not a Christian, but he wrote something interesting one time. He said he compared the human race to a bunch of porcupines on a cold winter's night. The colder it gets, the more we need each other. But the closer we get, the more we stick each other with our quills. 
Have you ever hugged a porcupine? <laughs> Have you ever hugged anybody who felt like a porcupine? That's what my granddaughters say when I kiss them and I haven't shaved. Daddy, Papa, Granddaddy, you feel like a piece of sandpaper. And Schopenhauer said when, we, when it gets cold, we need each other, we get together, we stick each other and hurt each other, and if we're not careful, he said, we'll wander off into the cold and the night and drift apart thinking we don't need each other and then die in our isolation. But the fact is, when we get together and stick each other and it's painful, there is a way back. Even Jesus got hurt, and Peter hurt him by getting very close to Jesus, but he showed us there is a way back. Well, the story really begins here, this part of the story, in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, and you know this story. He asked him three times if he loved him. And then he said in verse 18, I say to you most assuredly, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. And Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, following them. The one who leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what are you going to do with this one? And Jesus said, it's none of your business. In a real nice way, he said, if I will that he remain, that he lives until I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. And this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that you remain till I come, what is that, that he remain? What is that to you, Peter? Well, there is a fascinating story here. And there are at least four things that I think show us how to accept forgiveness and how do we come back when we've let God down and how do we come back when we've let Christ down and how do we come back home when we denied him, when we have stood on the perimeter, when we have confessed that we do not know him or when we have refused to confess that we know him when we do know him. How do we come back? And there are four things that just grab us from the narrative. One is... We must love God. We don't talk much about loving God. But the three questions have a significance here. Simon, verse 15, son of Jonah, do you agapao, love me with sacrifice unconditionally without any idea of reward? Do you love me more than these? What is he speaking about? Well, look around you. Is he talking about the fish? Do you love me more than the fish? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, is he talking about the fishermen? Do you love me more than the fishermen? Maybe. Is he speaking about the disciples? Do you love me more than you love them? Or does he have in mind what Peter said in Matthew? Boy, if everybody turns against you and offends you, you can count on me, Jesus. I'll never offend you. 
And now Jesus is very subtly but very diplomatically reminding him, do you remember what you said, Peter, you rascal? You said you never offend me and you did worse than all the rest of these. Now tell me, now tell me, do you more love me more than these disciples love me? <laughs> now that's an interesting question. And Peter said, Lord, you know that I phileo, different kind of love. I brotherly love you. He said to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you agapao me? Do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. It would be like saying, Bill Shelton, do you love me? Do you really love me? He said, sure, I like you, Pastor. Do you really love me, Bill? Sure, I like you. Of course, you know I like you. See, that's the slight difference. And then the third time Jesus said, now Simon, verse 17, son of Jonah, son of Jonah, son of Jonah. You realize he said that three times, son of Jonah. <laughs> we don't talk like that, but there was a reason for that. Uh, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? And the last time Jesus changed his word. Do you brotherly love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you intimately know all things. And now Peter uses a word for intimate knowledge. You know better than anybody else what's been going on in my life. And you know I love you. You know I love you. I, I'm not sure that the significance of all that lies as much in the words for love as the fact that he asked him three times because there were three denials. And he is giving him an opportunity to confess that he loves him the same number of times that Peter denied him. And the question is, can your love for me be fired up again? Can your love be stirred? Can your love be kindled? I wish you would really be honest with God and acknowledge whether there was a time in your life and mine when we passionately loved him more than we do today. Was there such a time when you passionately loved God? I'm talking about loving God. Don't just be fearful of God. Don't just stand before an awesome God. I'm talking about loving God, about seeing God in his nature to such an extent that you can say, I love him. That is what Jesus said is the essence of everything, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, hearts, minds, souls, and strengths. Do we really love him? And I will tell anybody who senses that they have strayed from God or wandered from God or their experience with God is not a ri as rich as it once was, I would say to anybody, the key to reviving and rekindling the fire is to start loving God passionately again in the way you talk with him, in the way you treat him, in the way you think of him. Yesterday was my sixth anniversary since the heart attack. I couldn't believe it. And through the, throughout the day, I gave thanks to the Lord for the gift of six additional years I didn't know I would ever have. And it was a day of thanksgiving and praise. 
It was a day of thanksgiving. It was a day of rejoicing for me. And I thought about all the times that I've had, the quiet times with God, that I never seemed to have time for before. And I thought about how good God has been. And I am trying, I confess to you, to honestly learn how to love God passionately. For the key to change, the key to accepting forgiveness from anybody is to learn to love them. And the key to coming back home to God is to love Him passionately. I like commercials. Do you follow commercials? Until I don't watch a lot of TV, but I've seen one several. Do you like the Sustacal commercial? I like the Sustacal. Have you seen that? Here's this staid old couple standing up on a lookout, looking through, you know, for a quarter you put in the glasses, and they're drinking Ensure, <laughs> you know, a chocolate shake of Ensure, and patting themselves on the back how healthy they're going to be, and they're drinking their Ensure. And then they see down these, this roaring river, there is a paddle boat with a motor on it just rip-roaring down through the waves. And he sets his sight, you know, through the little quarter telescope, and he sees an, an older couple just as old as they are, but they're down there waving in the boat, having a big time. And they're drinking Sustacal. <laughs> And he looks at his insurer as if he would just drink Sustacal. He could be riding on that river instead of sta standing passively looking at what's going on. And then the announcer comes in and says, Sustacal may not add years to your life, but it will add life to your years. I like that. You like that? That's neat. Have you tried it? Anybody here run out and buy Sustacal as a result of that? But if I ever need something like that, I'll tell you what I'm going for. I'm going for the Sustacal. I went out in the whitewater, amen? That's where I want to be. But the truth is, it's not in a drink that will restore your passion for life. I want to tell you two things about love. One is, I choose whom I love. And you choose whom you love. And you choose whether to love God and how much to love God. And you choose how much to love your spouse and how much to love your children, how much to love your parents and how much to love your friends. And the second thing about love is we tend to become like what we love. And the more we love somebody, the more we tend to become like them. Whether it's a hero, a wife, a husband, a dad, a mom, a friend, we become like what we love. There's a second point that Jesus makes. When Peter said, yes, you know intimately, Lord, that I love you, in verse 17, Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. Now, the second thing that I think has to occur on the road back to God is we need to get busy. And we need to get busy serving others. Sin never happens in isolation. When you sin, you bring down 10 others in your network. 
That's why the Bible says if an elder sins publicly, you rebuke the elder publicly because his network is larger. If I were to fall from grace of God and if I were to have a moral failure, can you imagine the effect upon this body and upon this community? And that's, that's just the reality of it, folks. People ask me, well, why are you hard on that? I'll tell you why. Because you've got a greater responsibility, and unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be what, class? Required. If we, but nobody sins in isolation. But if we sin, we have an effect upon the community, which is why I think Jesus said, feed my sheep, get busy among the people. I want you to get out front, be a point man for my grace. I want you to get out and show people, who, everybody who knew that you failed and denied me, I want you now to stand up and say, here I am, a trophy of the grace of God. That's what he was saying. That's what he was doing. Get out there and teach and feed my sheep and let them know that the man who fell has been restored and he's now a trophy of the grace and the goodness of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Feed my sheep. Hold your hand here and go back to Psalm 51. When David confessed his sin with Bathsheba, in chapter 51, verse 1, he said, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. See, don't have mercy on me according to my behavior. Boy, if, if, if God gave David what he deserved, he would have gotten justice. He said, Have mercy according to your hesed, your loving kindness. And then notice what he said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. And what's the next thing? Then when I have been restored, then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted to you. There is nothing like a man who has fallen and come back to get out there and feed the sheep and teach transgressors thy ways, God's ways and be a demonstration of the goodness and the grace and the forgiveness of God. I think love brings duty. If you love me, feed my sheep. Love brings duty. We only prove that we love Jesus when we genuinely love others. Love is a great privilege, but love is also a great duty. Third, the road back to God, to accepting his forgiveness, is to learn how to die right. <laughs> learn how to die right. Folks, I'm concerned about how to live, but I think more of us ought to be concerned about how to die. I think it's fascinating that Jesus adds this element to the whole thing. Get ready, Peter. Get ready. Verse 18. When you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. When you were younger, you did what you wanted to do and you took care of yourself. Jesus said, but when you are old, you will be dependent. One thing about age, it teaches you to be dependent on others. Amen? <laughs> you can't do everything yourself. I can't do everything I did when I was 30. How many of you would acknowledge that you can't do everything you did when you were 30? And I'm going to tell you, it's going to get worse before it gets better. It'll get better in glory, but it's not going to get better right now. Not unless you drink Sustacal. But, any, 
But anyway, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you... And sometimes you just have to put yourself in other people's hands and they'll take you where you do not wish to go. I think one of the great ways we can show God we love him is by being prepared to die. Love brought Simon Peter across. In fact, John says in verse 23, this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that John live till I come, what is that to you? Now that's John's interpretive statement. And he gives another one the same kind in verse 19. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. Underline that. What did Jesus do when Jesus died? He brought glory to God. I want to die in such a way that I can bring glory not to myself, but to God. I talked with a, a Greek man I know who married Todd Taylor's daughter last night. I talked to him. He said, Brother Mark, he said, my two brothers and I went back to Greece several weeks ago, and they got there Friday night at 9 o'clock in the little village that I grew up in. And my daddy lived until... 5.30 the next morning and we all got to see him and all the family was together. And it's the first time I've ever seen anybody die. First time I've ever been in anyone's presence who died. And he said, my daddy died with grace. And he just reached up and took his last breath and all five children were standing around him. And he just simply died. Gave up the ghost. Man. That's the way I want to die. But however I die, I want to die with grace. Mark Scott said out on Highway 62, just out of Prairie Grove, Arkansas, just outside of town, there's a cemetery, and right by the side of the road are two tombstones for people by the name of Strickland. There's Mr. Strickland Stone and Mrs. Strickland Stone. And under it, they both already had their stones cut. They haven't died yet. They think they're ready to die because they got their stone cut. And under it, they wrote atheist under each of them. And under Mrs. Strickland's, it says, I cared for many animals during my lifetime. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? The glory of death is I cared for some animals. And under Mr. Strickland's is atheist. And then his stone reads, I don't have time for this sort of thing. Why, they think they've prepared for death. They're dying right. You don't die right until you die to the glory of God. We die the same way we live, for the glory of God. If you've ever faced death, if you've ever looked death in the eye, I want to tell you, that's a crucial moment. That's a moment where you have to be ready to say, okay, God, I give it all up to you. And the next breath you think, well, I'm going to wind up in heaven. And that's okay when your trust is in Christ. It works, I can tell you that. A pastor in Fayetteville told me two weeks ago that he was called to the hospital. There was a man named Ari Peterson that he'd been witnessing to who was lost. And he got a call that Ari Peterson had been taken to the hospital. When he got there, he looked around and he didn't see anybody he knew. 
And he went in to see the patient, and he was going to try to lead him to Jesus before he died. And when he went in, he saw it wasn't the Ari Peterson. He knew it was another man. <laughs> he said, I think I've made a mistake. This is the wrong Ari Peterson. But since I'm here, <laughs> since I'm here, well, he went back straight. He left the hospital and went straight to the place where Ari Peterson lives. He says, man, I just got called to the hospital. You're about to die. And he said, I rushed to the hospital to tell you about Christ before you died. And since it was the wrong Ari Peterson, I came to your house to tell you, you might die and you'd better be saved right away. The man said, well, I don't think I better do this just because you came to see me, but I appreciate your coming. Have prayer for me. But the next Sunday when the invitation was given, guess what happened? Well, Mr. Peterson got out of his seat and walked as fast as he could to the front of that church to make his peace with God and receive Christ as his Savior so he would be prepared to die just in case the next time it wasn't a dry run. <laughs> die well, Peter, die right. Fourthly, however, Jesus said, in response to Peter who said, what about this man, John? Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Now, underline this. Here's the fourth thing. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. If you're coming back to God, you must follow him. Follow him. If you're being forgiven by someone else, you keep on walking with that person and building the relationship. You give up any grudge, any, any insecurity that you might have, to that person whom you offended, who has now forgiven you, you give up any shame, you follow them and walk with them. How do you follow somebody who's not there? How do you follow somebody who's not present? How do you follow somebody who's gone back to heaven? What do you mean, Jesus? Follow me. You said you're going to leave me. Well, you follow his example and what he taught. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? If you love me, you will what, class? Keep my commandments. That's what he meant. Never worry about others. They're not your business. I don't measure you by others, Peter. Don't worry about John. That's what he's saying. People say, why don't you do this? Other churches do this and this and this. We don't go by what other churches do. We do what we think God wants us to do. People say, well, why don't you try this and this? And this? We don't follow other churches. We don't follow other ministries. We try to follow Christ and do what he wants us to do. And that's what every believer is to do. When we receive the forgiveness of Christ, we have an obligation to follow him. It means to line our lives up and do what he would have done. How does that work out? Well, that's what the book of Acts is all about. So when Peter comes to Acts chapter 2, turn over to Acts 2. And the Holy Spirit is about to fall. And he comes down upon them and they're speaking in other tongues. In verse 14, somebody has to take the lead. Here is Peter following Christ by preaching and feeding his flock. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. 
when he comes to the end of the message, notice verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. This risen, this risen, resurrected Christ. Peter said, I am his witness. Every Christian is his witness to the reality and the life of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, he follows Christ with his compassion. A lame man is there at the gate to the temple. And Peter said to him in verse 6, silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. <laughs> and he gave him what he had to give from Christ. Acts chapter 4, there is obedience manifested. Peter is following Christ in obedience. You remember that the Sanhedrin in the middle of chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, saw that Peter and John, though uneducated and untrained men, had been with Jesus. And, and uh, in verse 19, Peter and John answered them when they told them to stop preaching. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things. Now there it is again. Which we have seen and which we have heard. I have experienced the living Christ. I am now following that Christ who's ascended back to heaven. And I cannot but speak what I have seen and heard. Witnessing. And when he went back to have a prayer meeting in verse 23 and tell the local assembly what had happened, he went back to, the, to his companions and, and he and John reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And this was the heart of their prayer. Verse 29, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. We're going right back on the streets and we're going to witness and speak your word. And then when you see in Acts chapter 10, Peter is having a stay with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. And in verse 10, Cornelius, whose alms are remembered in the sight of God, and God responded to him, told Peter, he said, that I was told by an angel to send to Joppa, in verse 32, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. And so Peter came... And Peter then preached to Cornelius, witnessed to him. And in verse 39, he said, We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. In spite of the fact that he had failed Christ and had seen the death from afar, he had been restored and he was now following Christ by telling everything he had seen and heard. Ladies and gentlemen, the 27th of this month, we're going to give you a chance for a concentrated time of evangelism. I think a good evangelistic effort naturally follows after Easter just as it did in the book of Acts. It's almost like rain producing green in your lawn. It's just as natural as can be. If we have experienced the living Christ and we have been restored to his grace, then we want to love him. We want to feed his sheep. We want to learn how to die right. 
and we want to follow him. And that means being witnesses to everything we have experienced. I know you have different personalities. Some of you can knock on doors. Some of you can build friendships. But everybody here is intended to be a witness to the living Christ in one way or another. Last year, we baptized one person for every 31 members of this church. It took 31. It took this many people on pews. One, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. It took that many people to win one person to Jesus Christ last year and to see them discipled and congregationalized in the ministry of this church. 31. 31. 31 of us. We're not just some of us witnesses. We are all witnesses of the living Christ. What he's done in us is our story. It's my story. It's your story. And Jesus said, follow me. We've been forgiven. We've been restored. We don't really have any option. Love brings a duty. The duty is to feed, die, write, and follow. I heard Billy Graham tell one time, that in 1957, he was in the New York crusade. And one night, just as he was going to the crusade meeting, band leader, not Tommy, but Jimmy Dorsey. Jimmy was the trombonist, wasn't it? Any big band aficionados here? Jimmy Dorsey called him and said, Mr. Graham, I'm so tired of life. I don't want to live. I just want to die. I have no reason to live. Do you have a message for me? Could, could I possibly talk with you? Could you tell me how to find a way to add life to my years? Whatever he said, that was the substance. Billy Graham said, I, I'm so busy. I've got to go to this crusade meeting tonight, and, and I've got a meeting afterwards, but tomorrow morning I'll call you first thing in the morning. I, I want to respond to your need. I, I'll call you first thing in the morning. But he said he went through his evening agenda. Early next morning, got up, walked down to the street to call a cab to go over to Jimmy Dorsey's hotel to meet with him. When he heard the plaintive cry of the newsboy calling out, extra, extra, read all about it. Jimmy Dorsey takes his own life. Jimmy Dorsey commits suicide. And Billy Graham realized as the hair stood up on the nap of his neck, that he had put off a call to be a witness, to lead somebody to Christ. I would pray that as a result of Easter, as a result of God's forgiveness, we will learn how to love God, how to feed sheep, how to die right, how to follow him. He's gone. So we follow him by doing what he would do if he were here. Would you bow your head with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I pray that in every one of our hearts you will lay a burden for us like Peter because we've been redeemed and forgiven to be witnesses. Father, right now on our hearts, give us the name of a neighbor that we need to reach for Christ of a friend that we need to read, of a relative, someone with whom we work, someone in our office, give us a name, lay it upon our hearts.
And Father, I pray for backsliders here today. Some have wandered from you like Peter. They've denied you. They've gone after the flesh. They've lived wildly, but Lord, there is a way back. Show them there is a way back. Show them that you'll accept them and forgive them if they'll come in confession and repentance. Teach them how to love you, how to get busy for you in your body, how to learn how to die with glory and grace and how to be a witness and follow you. God stir us. Some of us used to be great witnesses and soul winners, but we haven't won anybody to Jesus in a long time. Help us to follow you, not to compare ourselves with others, but to do what you want us to do.